0: Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 6, Jesus for everyone. That is our, uh, our sermon series that we are in, walking through uh, the book of Luke. Jesus for everyone. And we are right in the middle of uh, one of Jesus' uh, famous sermons. Not the Sermon on the Mount, but its a lesser known cousin, the Sermon on the Plain. And, uh, and we're going to look at what might be, uh, I, what I, I think some of us might consider to be the single hardest teaching that Jesus ever gives this morning. The single most difficult one for us to apply, the one that most of us, uh, that feels the most unnatural and that most of us would uh, really probably wish he had never uh, said. There may, there may not be any more teacher, a teaching that is, is more difficult than this one. But also, as foundational to what Jesus wants us to understand about who we are as Christians and about who God is and His nature, uh, when I lived in in Louisville, we lived there for uh, for a few years. When I lived in Louisville, I worked at ups and because the the town 's pretty big city. The seminary was there. The University of Louisville was there in town, and uh, there were a ton of students that worked at the facility where I was uh, at it 's kind of the the main hub for ups like ninety five percent of their packages go through uh, go through louisville at some point uh, there 's all kinds of people that, that, that worked there uh, and in my portion of the building where we were at, uh, we had guys that were there from Alabama from Kentucky, obviously, but uh, Ohio, Michigan, South Carolina, Florida, Oregon, Missouri, Kansas, Maine, uh, kind of all over the place. We had people from, uh, from everywhere. And the thing about this group that uh, really kind of made us all both get along and kind of hate each other all at the same time is somehow we were all pretty big college sports fans. Uh, we, we all kind of had our allegiances, and there was a lot of smack talk and running our mouths. This would have been like oh four oh five oh six. If you're familiar with Tennessee sports, it's not the best time to be talking smack uh, for most of that. Um, but that didn't stop a lot of us anyway, and it didn't stop a lot of those guys there that probably shouldn't have been uh, talking trash either. Uh, any win, any upset, any uh, anything that would, would happen, show up wearing school colors, uh, and it wasn't unusual for guys to kind of run their mouth at a level that far surpassed their team's ability to back it up. Um, and the funny thing is that, uh, for for a lot of us, the, the that per, that particular person that that we uh, knew that was in our group there, that was in our uh, our part of the building. For a lot of us, that was the only person that we knew that had that was attached to that school. Uh, so so like I from I'm from East Tennessee. I don't know a whole lot of people from Oregon. I don't know a lot of Oregon fans. I don't know a lot of like Southern Cal fans. I didn't know. Any Missouri fans. I still haven't met any other Missouri fans, but um, like it's just like that's the people that you would know. So what would happen is that uh, I would begin to associate with an entire fan base the personality of that one person. Uh, I would begin to assume that. Uh, the way that one person acted, that's the way the entire fan base acted. And I, I would project uh, uh, the, the the Michigan fan that was there in our group, I would project that the way that, that he acted was the norm for all Michigan fans. I know it doesn't work this way, but it's human nature. This is We all do this on some level, no matter how aware we are, that that's not how, how it works. I used to usher at Neyland Stadium, so I had a pretty good idea of how bad Florida and Alabama fans were. I didn't need to meet new ones to know this, uh, but, but not some of these other schools. And I remember telling an, o- an Ohio State fan at one point that I thought he was a pretty good guy. He actually happened to be one of my neighbors, and I thought he was a pretty good guy, and that maybe the, apu- the, the, the reputation that, that uh, Ohio State fans had Uh, earned as being arrogant classless jerks uh, wasn't as accurate as I thought it was to which he said no you should probably meet a few more of us that's probably right that's probably what that's probably about right Um, but I remember thinking at at the time that uh, in the moment there was a powerful lesson for me there that knowing one person From a fan base, I was able to uh, either correct misperceptions that I had assumed assumed about an entire uh, fan base or better represent the true nature of that fan base. By knowing one person, I was able to understand a little bit better about the way that fan base worked. And what we're going to study today, this powerful teaching that Jesus gives us, is... is, uh, works in a way that can do the same thing because if we can get this right as 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 christians if we can get this right then we can be a person that corrects someone's bad assumption about the nature of god we can correct their negative perceptions about who god is that and show them what god is truly like and while that is a heavy weight for us to carry it is beautiful in what it says about who God is, and his love that he has for us. So, I'll tell you this ahead of time. What we're going to study is beautiful. But I'm warning you before I read this, it is really hard, and you're not going to like it. It is really hard, and you're not going to like it. Which seems to be a pattern if you're following along in the sermon on the plane so far. Two weeks, last week, I said uh, that the, the the message that Jesus begins with and his blessings and woes is uh, is uh, uh, that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to live in the kingdom of God, but or everybody wants the kingdom of God, but nobody wants to live in it. Today is going to be an application of that point. And so let's see what it is that Jesus has to say and how challenging it is to us. So Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from, one, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's the, that's the gist of the teaching. Now, it doesn't get much harder than that. I mean, can there, get, can there be anything more difficult than this? I'm not sure that there is. In fact... I'd argue that Christians today have, that this is such a difficult ethic of the kingdom of God that most Christians today have completely ignored and dismissed this teaching. I think they have completely thrown it out the window and instead we have promoted a brand of Christianity that thrives not on loving our enemies, but on identifying our enemies, vilifying our enemies, and pushing our enemies away. That is the definition of Christianity that, that most people are familiar with, especially here in the West in, in America. This, this polarization that now happens is, is, is kind of bread and butter for the church today. We thrive not on loving our enemies, but on finding them, attacking them, and then fearing them. That, that is the lifeblood of church, is being afraid of others that are trying to attack us. Christians are as identified by the enemies we create as we are by the God we love, maybe more so. So, in our culture right now, we are in a place that, that might be fascinating if you're a sociologist to try and study, but it's utterly terrifying to live in. The ability in our world, to connect, is easier than ever. But what that has led to is not to a unification, but a radical polarization of groups that has essentially never existed in the history of the world before now. Not that there wasn't groups, but the ability to to polarize one versus the other and and to to kind of create this constant pull. And you guys feel it. I don't have to tell you this. You know that it's there. This constant pull that, 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 that says that on almost every level on almost every conceivable thing you can think of an us versus them mindset we are we are groups at war with other groups and how you identify with what group defines who you are we put people in categories we put ourselves on teams and then we spend our lives testing our fidelity to that team's motto And the longer the team exists, the louder its proponents, the more extreme that team will become. And what you get is a person that identifies as certain things. Tennessee fans, Democrats, pro-school vouchers, anti-this, pro-this, pro-vegan, pro-carnivore, pro-good moms do this, anti-bad moms do this, like whatever. We establish our cultures and we say, this is what we are. This is what we do. Which team are you on? Are you on the good mom's team or the bad mom's team? Are you on the one that feeds your kids this or feeds them this because you hate them? Like, this is how it goes, like constantly. This is how we decide who we are. Every We establish our camps, and then we, we call everyone that doesn't adhere to our, uh, our test of fidelity in that camp as an other, and we immediately become sworn enemies. We are forced more than ever to pick a side, defend our side, and then vilify the other one. And listen, I'm going to tell you right now, this country will not survive that. If we don't figure out a way to talk to each other that are in our different camps, we will not survive. I don't know how we will be torn apart. I don't know what it will look like, but we won't survive it. You can't survive the kind of rhetoric that our country has right now we've got to figure out a path forward in all of this stuff and so long as the other person is the other person and in the other group and thereby your enemy then that means you can't talk to them it means you can't you can't figure out a way forward it's a massive problem i don't i don't pretend to stand here and have the answers it's clear that none of our politicians have the answers, yet somehow we're convinced that the politicians are the ones that will, that'll be the, the light for us to move forward. And sadly, Christians are probably better at this, more efficient at this than anyone else. Probably have more practice at this than anyone else. At a minimum, we're just as guilty as the rest of our culture. There's, there, there is no difference between the Christian church and the way we vilify others and the way that our culture vilifies others. There's no difference. If there's any difference, we're better at it. And yet we have a teaching from Jesus that he says the ethic of the kingdom is the exact opposite of that. So what do we do with that? How in the world do we find a way forward here? It has created a dynamic that is unsustainable. There's too much hate, too much anger, too much rhetoric. The views of our world are too different. So when Jesus stands up and says, love your enemies, and you've pretty clearly defined your enemies and how irrational and how dumb they are and how immoral they are and how you are superior to them and how you view the world better than them, how are you supposed to go now and love that person? Jesus' teaching could not be more countercultural to our present moment. And yet it seems entirely impossible. Now, don't misunderstand, it would have felt entirely impossible to his original audience, too. He's talking to Jews that are being oppressed by the Romans that have had their dignity, that have had their autonomy, that have had everything taken away from them. And this is a group of people that have been told, you are to love your neighbor, but make no mistake, the Roman is not your neighbor, he is your enemy. And so it would have felt just as countercultural to them too. But somehow it feels even more acute to to, to me, at least as I read this now. And maybe it's just because I I can so readily point out all the ways I don't want to apply this text. If you've been around church for long, you've heard this teaching before. But I feel like this is one of those teachings that whenever we read this, whenever we read love your enemies, turn, turn your cheek, I feel like this is one of those where, where we say, look, I'm trying to be a good guy, I'm trying to be a good dude, I'm trying to love my family, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm here at church on Sunday, so give me some credit for that. Uh, I try to watch what I say and what I do. But this teaching's just on another level for me. I I get that this is what I should do. I understand Jesus. But honestly, I'm just an ordinary guy. And this is for those black belt level Christians. So I'm just going to have to ask for a little grace on this one. Because I don't think I'm ever going to get there on this one. That's not for me. That's for like the super Christians. The problem is that the way Jesus frames, that, frames this is that it isn't for the black belts at all, but instead it's, it's essential to the nature of our faith. It's essential to our identity as Christians. But I don't think we fully understand why it's so essential. It's not add-on Christianity. It's not for those that have mastered the lower levels and now you've kind of moved on to the boss level. And the boss level is now you've got to love your enemies. This is not what we're talking about. So let's work through what Jesus is saying here and then see why this is so important to the ethic of the kingdom. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Love, do good, bless, pray for What Jesus is calling us to there are active verbs, to do something. This doesn't just say, accept something, like the next sentence is going to say, where it says, turn the other cheek. This isn't just saying to accept the reviling and the hatred. It demands of us an initiative to pursue good for the person that opposes you. That's what makes this so hard. This is... Not just be a good dude and don't don't get super mad at people. This is show initiative to pursue good to those that wish you were dead. Man, that's so hard. This is Jesus telling us how to operate in a world that will come after you and will oppose you. Now, this, this next sentence, it, it is a passive acceptance. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away from your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, this part of this passage, I think, has been completely mis, misrepresented, completely like, like used for in incorrect in ways. So, so this, this, this part, turn the other cheek, has been used to create an, an ethic from, from personal nonviolence To some that would even advocate for a national nonviolence and for uh, for, for, for those to be, to, to, to be pacifists, that we uh, as Christians, that a nation that would call itself a quote-unquote Christian nation, that we shouldn't have an army, we should never be an aggressor, we should never stand up and, and fight, we should never do any of those things, that we sh- and then even on a, on a personal level, we should not defend ourselves, we should accept any manner of violence toward ourselves and our families. Now, I think we can pretty quickly dismiss this on a national, st- national scale because if any act of violence must be accepted by a nation, that nation simply won't be, along, be won't be around for very long. If a nation can't defend itself, it, it simply won't be here very long. It would also make, if, if this was a universal application of this principle, it would also make a police force utterly impossible to maintain. So this can't be a blanket pacifism in, in the sense of you're never allowed to do anything to defend yourself. This, there's, you can make an argument for, uh, to, to, to be a pacifist from other passages in Scripture, but I don't think you can draw it out from this one. Jesus has in view here a personal ethic. But I don't think it means quite the same thing that, that, that others have taken it to mean either. I don't think it really e- e- even has anything to do with physical violence or self-protection. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is you're not allowed to defend yourself or your family. I think we miss some context here whenever we're, we're so uh, withdrawn from the context where Jesus is saying this. I think this is talking about insults and societal exclusion. When Jesus teaches about a slap in the face, he's not talking about getting beat up and we just have to take it. He's referring to a practice that would have taken place uh, when, when someone was determined within the Jewish community that they were no longer welcome in the synagogue or in the temple. And what would happen is, whereas here we would practice church discipline, and we would send a letter and we would say, you are no longer a member of this church. What would happen in the synagogue is if you were, if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, that would be done in a very public, very shaming way. You would be brought before others and then the, the, the leader of the synagogue or the priest would, 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 would slap you, like publicly would slap you as an insult and a clear presence that you are not welcome here anymore. If you, if, you, if you follow Jesus before the high priest, before he is crucified, one of the things that happens when he is before the high priest is he is smacked in the face by the high priest. That is not, that is not for uh, the purpose of physical violence. That is to say he is not welcome there. He is not one of them. He is no longer welcome as a Jew. So what's going on here, whenever it says that, that you're supposed to turn the other cheek, it's saying when you are reviled, when you are insulted, when you are excommunicated by those that were a part of your society, you need to turn the other cheek and be willing to absorb that insult. You need to be willing to take that in. You need to be able to, 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 to take that. So the, the, the slap in the face was a form of punishment and insult, and you need to be able to brace yourself for another. Don't let it create in you a vindictiveness that drives you to retaliate. Absorb the offense. It's not saying don't defend yourself from physical violence. It's saying absorb the disrespect and the insults that will be thrown at you because you follow me. The tunic was again a warning to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be abused and taken advantage of. When that happens, don't just look for vengeance. Go to the next level of absorbing the fact that you've been taken advantage of and then respond with grace and kindness. And listen, I'm not trying to soften this text. I'm not trying to to, to change it around. I think what, what Jesus is asking us to do to absorb the offense is, is terribly difficult. I'm, I'm a huge fan of... Uh, uh, of the musical Lay Mis. I don't know. We got any other Lay Mis fans in here? We got a few. All right. So we, we got a few of you guys in here. I love it. Emily and I love going to uh, to see musicals, and that is my uh, favorite. It's the story of a guy who kind of reinvents himself, and uh, and 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 creates a new life for himself when he gets out of jail. And there's one scene that serves as kind of a turning point for the main character, Jean Valjean. He is taken in by a priest. He's, he's been released from prison. He can't find any food. He can't find any work. He's taken in by a priest. And he, uh, when, he, when, he, when he's taken in, he's given food. He's given uh, something to eat, something to drink. Uh, he, is, he is fed. He is clothed by, by the church. And in the middle of the night... He, he he wakes up and he realizes that everyone's asleep and he could get out the door with all the silver in the place. He, he could take all their silverware, he could take all of their stuff, he could take all of this before anyone wakes up and he sees them as fools for leaving this out for him to take. And he does. He gets up and he he takes everything, he escapes in the middle of the night, but he's busted by the cops and they bring him back to the priest. And the silver is laid out for the priest and for all the cops to... Uh, or for. the laid out by the cops for for the priest to see and it's all put out there and the cops say, this man says that that, that you gave him this silver. Now we know that's not true, priest, but if you'll just tell us that that's not true, then we'll arrest him and he'll be back in prison for the rest of his life. Valjean later sings one word from the priest and he'd be back upon the lash. But the priest doesn't do that. Instead, he says to the cops that he, had, that, that, that he had, in fact, given him the silver. That, in fact, that, that, that uh, Valjean had left so quickly in the middle of the night that he had actually forgotten the best piece of silver that they had, the candlesticks. And so the priest goes and he grabs the candlesticks and he says, You forgot the best part, Valjean. Take this with you and go and use this gift to become an honest man. Valjean is so shocked by the generosity of the priest. He's so blown away by what has just happened because he realizes in this moment his life was in the hands of this priest. And the priest could have sent him to jail forever, but instead chose to show him grace. And it changes his life, becomes the catalyst for the rest of, of the musical. And I can't, I, every time I hear this part of the, the musical, it chokes me up. I, I love the picture that is there. And this is, this is what he sings in response to the priest's grace that is shown. He says, Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, the world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. It is such a powerful witness when the priest absorbs the offense and does, and, and, and does exactly what this says. Whenever it, it says, and whenever they take your tunic, give your cloak also. When they take your silverware, give them the candlesticks too. And that moment of grace is so powerful, so impactful that it becomes the, the, the complete transformation in this guy's life. All he's ever known, all our world ever teaches is eye for an eye. You do for me and I'll do for you. What you do to me, I'll do to you. The way you wrong me, I'll wrong you. You take care of me, I'll take care of you. That is the ethic of the kingdom of this world, and it's all that Valjean had ever known. And so whenever he's exposed to the kingdom of God and the ethic that says, I will show you grace and I will show you mercy, it completely changes his life. This is what Jesus is driving at here. That when we are wronged, when we are insulted, when we are persecuted, we can see those as moments for anger and fighting and vengeance. Or we can see them for unique opportunities to put the gospel on display. Verse 30, it says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Again, what Jesus is saying here is not complicated. You don't need a ton of exposition from me on this one. He says, be generous to a fault be willing to endure insult, the embarrassment of being taken advantage of, of looking like a rube, of looking like an idiot, of somebody saying, How could you be, how could you be so generous to that person? They're just gonna blow that money anyway. Endure the insult. Endure being thought of that way. The worldly rule is to do do unto others as they do unto you. Jesus says, do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. And it completely changes the way you view people and you view the world. It's not matching another person's actions. It's setting the tone for new, more gracious actions. And then Jesus is going to go and explain why this is how we should live I'm, gl- I'm so glad he does this this next paragraph, because that doesn't always happen. Sometimes Jesus just says really hard things, and you're just left to be like, "Oh, that was a really hard thing." And he doesn't explain why he, he, why he sets it up this way. But here he's going to explain to us why this is the ethic of the kingdom. here's what he says, verse 32. He says, "If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you now as I read this, that question's going to come up a lot. What benefit is that to you? I don't know about you, but that question is pretty easy to me. Like, what benefit is that to me? One, it protects my heart, and two, it makes sure that, somebody's gonna, that, that people are going to be looking out for me. That's how. That's the benefit to me, Jesus. Like, is this a rhetorical question? Because i got a pretty obvious benefit for why this is the way I live my life. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Well, what benefit that is to me is people do good to me. This is not a hard question, Jesus, for even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? What credit that is to me is the interest that I charge them whenever I lend them stuff. These are not hard questions. I get a benefit if I live by the world's ethic. But what Jesus is trying to show us here is that benefit is insufficient in the kingdom. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I just love this teaching because the benefit that we receive by living by the world's ethic is obvious. We like to pretend that, that, that when we stand up here and we moralize about things and whenever we preach out of the Bible, we like to pretend that it's so obvious that the way of the world is, uh, is, is bankrupt and the way of Jesus has all these wonderful benefits. But the reality is, if I only love those who love me, I have a lot of benefit to that. It's really obvious. If I lend in order to get credit, it is obvious that there's a benefit to me. If I do good by, for, by those who do good to me, man, that protects me in my relationships and it makes sure that I'm taken care of. I give something in order to get something back. It's a good exchange for me. So let's not pretend that the world system doesn't work out for, for most of us most of the time. Because it does. But what Jesus is saying is that it looks different in the kingdom of God. And that while that may seem like a benefit to you, everyone does that. You're no different than anyone else if you do it that way. But if you live the way that I'm telling you, if you do what I'm saying, your reward will be great. It won't just be that you're protected here on the earth. It will mean that in the kingdom of God, you are sons of the Most High. Not that you have earned that, but that because you have have established yourself in that kingdom, that is how you can live. That is what you can know. You are a, a child of God. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus makes it clear that when we live like this, When we pray for those that are against us, when we love our enemies, whenever we pursue good for those that wish us harm, whenever we don't live in a world and we don't operate in such a way that says, I take what you give and and you take what I give because we're in this for each other, what he makes it clear is that there is a bigger reward for us in the kingdom of God. That we are setting our sights way too low if the only way that we operate is out of uh, uh, what do I get from you? What can I get from you? The world wants to convince us that following Jesus is a ticket to boring, unfun, unfulfilled life. Jesus says, I can teach you how to live in a way that will, make you, that, that, that will put you in a place that you cannot imagine the benefits of. The world says if you follow Jesus and you live like this, you'll be a fool. And Jesus says you'd be a fool if you didn't follow this teaching because of what I'm offering you. But don't miss the entire picture here. Love your enemies. Why? Because in so doing, you'll receive a reward that this world can't touch and cannot match. It is only available to those that are sons of God. And here's why this is so powerful. Because when you live in this way, you are able to show people that would otherwise never know who God is, what He is like. Did you hear what I said there? If you live like this, you are able to show people who would never never pick up a Bible who 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 have a, a a great assumption about who God is and that is basically that he probably hates them you get to show them if you live like this exactly what God is like you can correct their misconceptions i quote Tozer all, all the time. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And when you love your enemies and accept insults and pray for those that hate you, you get to show people what God is like. Because this is exactly what God has done for us. Romans five chapter or Romans chapter five verse three through eight says this. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to, even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Endure suffering, endure the insults, endure being, being excommunicated and, and being taken advantage of. Why? Because that produces hope, because our hope is not in this world, and it teaches others what God is like. And what is God like? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he sent his son for us. He did not do unto us as we did unto him. Christ died for us. And it is his death that makes us sons and daughters of God. If God had waited till we had loved him before he loved us, he never would have done it. It took God taking the initiative to pursue us. Just as we are to take the initiative to do good on behalf of those that are our enemies, God did the same for us. He sent his son to do good on our behalf. He took the initiative to come for us, to love us, to save us while we were still enemies. He had to be the initiator. And then, when his son was arrested and hauled away, he endured the insults. He was struck on his cheek. He had his tunic stripped from him. And what did he say? What did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. But you see, the world doesn't live this way. And that's exactly the point. The world has relationships based on what we can get from them. For so many of us, this is the the, the baseline for all of our relationships. This is the baseline for our relationship with our friends. This is the baseline for our relationship with our church. This is our baseline for our relationship with our spouse. What can I get from you? And based on what I can get from you, to that measure, I will give to you. Jesus says, I get nothing from you, but I give you everything. The world asks the question, what can I extract from this relationship? How can I leverage this relationship? We have an opportunity to show people what God is like, and that is a radically different approach to a relationship. And it could not be more distant it, it could not be more different than in, in our culture. Like the, the, the way that relationships are, are, uh, are pursued could not be more different in our culture and it's almost non-existent that we care for people this way in the church. When we live the way that Jesus calls us to, when our ethics match those of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to, we show people that we value a different kingdom. We show people that we see them differently. We don't see them as other. We see them as just like us in need of grace. We show them that we fundamentally view the purpose and the way that this world works differently. We show them something of the nature of God. We remove ourselves as the one that determines and distributes justice and instead put us in our rightful place in the kingdom. Recipients of grace. You see, we are recipients of that grace because as enemies of God, He came and He sought us. He took the initiative to do good to us. And so we are called to do the same. The ethics of the kingdom are not fun in the sense of like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm so glad that I'm following this guy. But the ethics of the kingdom teach us who God is and then who we are to be in extension of that. And it's all built on grace. The teachings are not hard just to be hard. They're hard because it shows us something of the character of God. And then it gives us a chance to be witnesses of that character. So this morning, if you consider yourself on some measure to be worthy of the grace of God, that is is a complete oxymoron to say that, yet it's how most of the church operates. If you consider yourself to be worthy of the, the grace of God, then the way that you approach others is, you need to be worthy of my grace. Jesus says, that's not how it works in this kingdom. You weren't worthy of grace, and neither neither are they. Stop waiting for them to make themselves worthy, and show it to them anyway. And in so doing, you represent me to the kingdom of this world. It's so hard. It's so hard. I, I, I can't stand up here and pretend that this is something that we can just do. We can't but we are empowered by the Spirit and those that know grace show grace. And so that's the question that I have for you this morning. Do you know grace? And if so, what does it look like in your life when you show that grace? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we we hear yet another hard teaching, as we consider what it means to live in the kingdom of God, of God, when we, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, we confess that this is difficult, that these are hard things that you have called us to. And so we ask that we would be empowered by the Spirit to do what it is that you have called. May we be able to fully represent your grace and your mercy to someone who, who otherwise does not know you, Maybe let them experience grace for the first time. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.